Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm so excited about today. I have Kyle Bishop here on the line, and we're going to be talking some more about narcissistic abuse. We're going to be talking about codependent relationships, but we're going to be talking about this in a very specific way. We're going to talk about what happens when we're taught that God is a narcissist or is abusive or is codependent and how that affects our way of looking at ourselves and our relationships with other people. And we're going to just kind of dig into this and see what comes up. I'm really excited because he is a smart dude. I love listening to his content. He likes to research just like me. So we've got kind of two little nerds here. They're going to be like digging into all this good stuff. I hope you don't mind me calling you a nerd. I think that's a compliment. I could never deny it, even if I wanted to. There's too much evidence. <laughs> my audience knows I'm a total nerd. I spend my weekends <laughs> reading academic journals and they're like, oh, okay. So yeah, that's who you're dealing with today, but it's going to be a really great podcast and I can't wait to see what comes up in our conversation. But I'm going to go ahead and let Kyle introduce himself to you and we'll get started from there. Okay, so let's, I guess the most relevant information that people want to know is kind of my experience with the church. So I'll kind of give a brief synopsis of that. Um, My heart left the LDS faith pre-2018, but 2018 was when my feet actually left. And uh, let's see, on the, let's see, it was 2021, January 25th that I finally wrote up a post on Facebook and I just told my audience, which is almost exclusively LDS to buckle up because the side of the discussion of people who leave the church is silenced. It's shamed. It's dismissed. And I said, Hey, listen, like I've found a lot of things that have completely changed the way that I feel about the church. I'm going to share them. If that's not something you want to be exposed to unfollow, take a break, whatever. And ever since then I came out swinging (laughs) and I, uh, I've, I've since, uh, I was, I've been a life coach for a few years, but as I kind of began to deconstruct, I realized that a lot of the things that I was telling people, you know, trust God, pray, you know, find some, you know, it it was, it was things I no longer agree with. And because my, my experience is so unique to Mormonism, I've begun coaching people who are going through the deconstruction uh, phase in, I guess it's not really a phase. Do you ever stop deconstructing? I don't. There's too many things to deconstruct. Yeah. At, at best, you take a break. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, so that's basically me. I, I coach people. My uh, my website is beyondgodandreligion.com. That should give you a hint as to my belief system. It is very comfortably, joyfully atheist, um, leaning very anti-theist. And that's kind of where I'm at. But ever since leaving the church, my passion has been helping people to explore their identities um, and reclaim them because that's something that we lose when we're indoctrinated into any religion is that space for self-exploration and questioning never takes place because you're handed a script and the script says, this is who you are. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This is what you don't eat. This is what you don't drink. 
these are the underwear that you're going to be wearing, like down down to your underwear. Yeah. Our religion was extremely high demand and controlled our lives. And we were okay with it because we trusted in the fundamental truth claims of the church, which as you look closer and closer, the cracks begin to appear. And then you realize that none of it was true, which is devastating, uh, despite what a lot of people who are still LDS uh, like to assume about people who leave. They just were weak or they just wanted to sin or coffee just tastes too good. And so it was worth losing all of our family and friends. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's the devil's water. It's addictive. Anyway, <laughs> so that, yeah, that's where I'm at. So let's let's uh, let's go for it. What questions do you have? Oh, I have so many questions. Okay, so you put up a post a few weeks ago that was talking about abuse of God. Like when you're taught to believe in an abusive God, because some people are taught to believe in a very loving, kind, securely, healthily attached God that allows them to be individual and to think critically and to disagree and to kind of figure things out for themselves. But I would say, I don't know of a high demand religion that teaches about that kind of God. And so I want to hear what you've discovered are traits of a God that would be abusive. So we'll kind of start there. Sure. So I I think that in order to to kind of grapple with this as as a person of faith, the first step that you do in understanding, in order to keep God to be a good person, there are certain things that you just have to say, that was a mistranslation for sure. You have to find Mm -hmm. some way to keep your God being the hero of the story instead of the villain. Uh, It's been said that if you have the Bible read to you, you'll become a Christian. And if you read the Bible for yourself, you'll become an atheist. There's no text that is more persuasive and cranks out more atheists than the Bible itself. You don't have to go to other sources. Other sources are helpful, but as you read through it and you find that this God commands human trafficking, ethnic cleansing, genocide, rape, genital mutilation, all these things, what could be more clear that this guy is a villain than he creates the genitals and then says, you have to cut pieces of it off. It's like, that wasn't a very omniscient thing to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was still a believing member, I had to have my Jesus be the, be the hero. And the more that I looked at it. So in, according to the LDS tradition, the God of the old Testament, which you have to completely, you know, find some way to make that make sense. And good luck with all the violence and the bloodshed and the hatred and the war and all that. Um, You have to find some way to have Jesus be a good guy. But in the LDS tradition, Jehovah is the God of the Old Testament. And the question is, well, who is Jehovah? Jehovah is Christ. And so when people have this narrative that Jesus was just this good guy, and I I actually bumped into an old ward member from my family ward in a Smith's grocery store. And he's like, you know, the only thing that Christ ever asked us to do was to love our neighbor. And I was like, you have not read anything or you, he's completely created this false narrative that Christ was just, Hey man, just love each other. And if that's actually what it was, then how do you explain in Luke when Christ says, Hey, bring those who would not have me rule over them and slay them before me. And what about the verse when Christ says, those who don't believe in me depart into everlasting fire seems a bit narcissistic and crazy because it's one thing to want someone to pay for, you know, stealing something, you know, you stole something that costs 20 bucks, you give back 20, 21 bucks, you know, Mm -hmm. and that'll do it. But I can't imagine a loving God who's like, not only are you going to pay for your sins, even well after your debt is paid, you're going to burn forever. And we're just, you're just going to be an endless fire. And so keeping Jesus as, as the good guy, it's like, whoa, that actually doesn't make sense. So at that point, that's where the real mental gymnastics begin. 
you have to look at all this bad behavior, which subconsciously I think we're used to seeing in the church and finding some way to not have to look at it and to make it make sense in some way. Or and then, then we get to these just so vague and mushy um, sorts of explanations like, well, we just have to have faith. God's ways are higher than us. We, we can't understand all of his ways. People are imperfect. We have agency. I mean, every one of the excuses in the book, he was a product of his time. It's like, all those things can be true, but does that make it moral? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and a lot of people will say, oh, you're taking it out of context. I say, okay, well then show me the context in which rape, genocide, human trafficking, ethnic cleansing is a good thing. Because if you can't provide a good context for it, but you'll deny the bad one, it is not a contextual issue. Because you can't yeah. provide a context in which that's a good thing. And yeah. so it's just one of the ways that we, like, I, I look back at the arguments I used to make and I just cringe. <laughs> my, my mental gymnastics were truly, I mean, Olympic gold medal level. I was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think you the and I would have given way. each other a good run for our money oh, yeah. because I was really good at finding something that would, I guess, a story that would make my brain kind of feel yeah. comfortable and shut down again so that I didn't really have to think deeply about it or feel afraid anymore. Yeah. You want to hear something funny? I'm going to try to take the cake here. We're going to get competitive as to who was the most brainwashed. Here's right, my claim to that, to that trophy. I was a Sunday school teacher as I was beginning to deconstruct. I gave a lesson called the benefits of atheism and still didn't figure it out. And what was interesting is that my lesson was so well received by the people around me. Like I had, I had a little bit of a falling of people who were like, I love his lessons. And it wasn't because I was amazing, but because I actually addressed the things that people didn't want to address. And I gave voice to it. And people were like, oh my God. Like, I mean, they would say, oh my gosh, I am yes. totally resonating with that. Oh my heck. And oh my heck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I think I win. So benefits of atheism in a, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm selfish. I'm, I'm claiming the title on that one. I think you totally win. Yeah. 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 Know, I think it's so interesting to me how one of the ways that, that high demand religions keep their, their members from figuring it out is that they start a civil war inside the members. And so they're okay. constantly fighting that battle of trying to be worthy, not realizing that their oppressor is their own belief system, which is touted by their church leaders who are seen as these benevolent, wildly intelligent, loving masters, you know, who mm -hmm. know better than you for you, what you should do and how you should be and how you should think and how you should feel. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I, I, love World War II um, documentaries. I find them fascinating, despite it being obviously one of the most awful periods of human history. Um, but one of the things I learned was so intriguing to me, and it made me make this parallel within the church. So inside a Nazi concentration camp, they would take these Jews, um, who obviously they're all trying to struggle for survival, and they would give some of them power, and they were supposed to keep the other Jews in line. And they were called capos, capos. I'm not yep. sure how you pronounce it, but capos. Uh, I yeah. don't know either, but I've always said capos. Yeah. Okay, we're going capos. So these capos would uh, they they would have this fight in there between the Jews and keep them so busy with this internal struggle that the external forces that you know built the walls of the concentration camp go almost unnoticed. Yep. Like that's not the focus of day-to-day -day life. And it was so interesting to make that parallel between what the church causes in people because the, the church. In order to keep you always busy and always fighting, you know, hustling for your worth, so to speak, they keep you always trying to measure up to an impossible standard. 
You can't do it. And so you'll never have a day when you're like, things are good. I can start looking around. You're always focused on this internal battle. And one of the things that I I was told at church was, you know, the analogy of the two wolves. They say inside of you, there's two wolves. Which one wins? The one that you feed? The church has an extremely dualistic approach to morality. It is black or it is white. It is good or it is evil. It is of God or it is of Satan. And that's that's what you're left with. And so, you know, it's it, it takes people who would otherwise just be, you know, nice, happy-go-lucky, easygoing, friendly people, and it turns them into radicals. Mm-hmm. And the way that this manifested in my family, for example, is uh, with the Sabbath day was one of the, the things that I still just causes me so much pain because the amount of family time I didn't get on Sundays because it was all about Jesus. It was like there was no playing catch. There was no um, board games. There were no movies unless it was church approved or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or The Sound of Music. For some reason, those two snuck through. And so I've watched both of those movies a million times. So when when the church has this, you know, keep the Sabbath day holy, and it says, we don't have an expectation for you. You just get to show God how much you love him. That breeds fanaticism. And my dad took that and he ran with it. And it was interesting because I didn't realize how unhealthy my family was and how, um, like, it was always, I was expected to believe that people who follow God are happy. And so I thought, well, this is just what happy is, even if it doesn't feel like it, because, hey, I'm scoring points for the big man upstairs and my mansion is going to be lit. It's going to be incredible. So whatever you have to do now, just stifle it. Stop those those pesky feelings and emotions and cognitive dissonance that is raging inside of you mm-hmm. and just handle it because you're going to heaven, baby. Like, just hang in there. And that's what I did for so long. Now, when I was a BYU student, I took this job um, as a, I was a supervisor for a dad who met with his kids. The state had taken away his children because he tried to murder his wife, who was also a total drug user. Um, and uh, he, he tried to murder the mom in front of the kids. The state said, yeah, that's crossing the line, took the kids away. And so he got to visit them under my supervision. And so I would show up. And one of the things I realized that with these kids is that they were so loving toward each other. They, their relationships were healthy and they loved each other. And it wasn't this, you know, perpetual struggle like it always was in my family. And there was always this dissonance, you know, because there were so many reasons to judge people or to feel unworthy. And so everybody's just walking around feeling terrible about themselves and also simultaneously judging other people for the same stuff that you're doing. But you have to point it out on them because you have to be a big brother because, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Like mm-hmm. God's answer is, yeah, you better keep them in line because if you don't, and it, oh, it just breeds fanaticism. Well, and, and not only that, discord. if you're feeling terrible about yourself, you're noticing all of that in other people because you're trying so hard to feel better. So you're looking to see, is there anyone worse than me? Like, how do I fall in this hierarchy? <laughs> you know, am I as bad as other people? Am I better than other people? You're yeah. constantly comparing yourself to other people. Whenever you don't have that self-worth and like the capos you were talking about, it keeps us at war squabbling with each other instead of noticing what's coming down from the top and how it's creating that gap of self-worth and how it's creating that, that feeling of I'm not enough. And I'm worried that no one will love me, including God. Yeah. It's as a parent, if your example of who to, you know, measure up to is Bible figures who kill and murder and all this stuff, then how could you possibly as a parent teach your children what a healthy relationship looks like if that is the standard? 
Yeah. Well, and even the family relationships are super unhealthy. You've got, you know, Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat where he's the golden child and he's given everything and his brothers have to serve him. The father makes the brothers serve him, causes a lot of resentment and, you know, they end up selling him into slavery. And then you've got, you know, in Mormonism, Lehi's family is one of the most unhealthy families I've ever seen. I noticed that even when I was still an active member, you've got him elevating Nephi, telling him what a good person he is, and then telling his brothers, you should be more like Nephi and constantly scapegoating them in front of the other brothers, tearing them down, talking about how unworthy they are and how disappointed he is in them because he's not living the way that Lehi wants him to live. And so he creates generations of war in, you know, the Book of Mormon, which I believe is made up, but you're correct. (laughs) (laughs) But you have these, you know, really unhealthy family dynamics held up as the ideal. And it makes sense that we even God's family, you've got the dichotomy of the golden child with Jesus and the scapegoat with Satan. Jesus does everything he's supposed to do, and he doesn't have a will of his own. He even says, not my will be done, but thine. And he doesn't have a will. He's codependent with God. And so he's the golden child, and Satan dares to think independently, and he gets kicked out. He's the scapegoat, and everything wrong in the world is his fault. It's like my my journey of coming out of the faith for so long while I was still in, it was like a contest, like this competitive race to see who could ignore more logic than their neighbor. And that person got the praise as being the ideal person of faith. And how many immoral things can you witness and just let go because God's going to take care of it. Like that's how you won the love in that kind of a system. If there's anything I know about people, it's that whatever system you put them in, even regardless of morality, if it's what brings love, approval, praise, acceptance, they're going to do whatever it takes to get that. And so if the, what you have to do is be violent in, in some societies where violence is praised, or, you know, you look at the cultural revolution in China, how it tore families apart, because if your father or mother said anything whatsoever that was sympathetic toward the nationalists, which were the opponents of the communist party, the children would turn in their own parents. They would either be executed or reeducated or something like that. And it's so sad. And you know, when I when I saw those kids that I was supervising in their visits, it really messed with my brain because I thought I've had the restored gospel. Why is my family not able to compete happiness-wise with this family that had their mother almost murdered in front of them? And that was a I'm gonna keep my language clean <laughs> for, for you. That was it's totally okay. Uh, my mind got ninjaed by that. <laughs> And I was like, I don't know how to make sense of this. And so it's like, well, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, except try harder, which was the exact opposite of what I should have done. Those those little moments where I realized that the uh, advertising does not match the product of Mormonism, what it says you'll get, yeah, it doesn't happen. And you're sitting there thinking it's probably because of me, because God's perfect. So if there's any, you know, if you pray and don't get an answer, you know, if you try your hardest and you get, you know, there's a promise in your patriarchal blessing that if you X, then Y, and it doesn't happen, the question, why am I so unworthy? Did I touch myself recently? Is that why? Did I listen to a rock song on the radio and the spirit couldn't speak to me? 
or you know, it's like, oh, I, I prayed or I gave somebody a blessing and it didn't turn out the way that I promised them that it would. You have to find some way to make it make sense. And I've seen this in families where the kid died on his mission and the family mentioned in his patriarchal blessing promises that if he remained faithful, he would have a, a wife, he'd, you know, cross the altar, they'd have kids just painted this beautiful picture of what Mormonism was going to look like for this kid. And so when he dies on his mission and those things don't happen, now his family gets to wonder, I wonder what he was hiding on his mission. I wonder what a villain my son was that I didn't see. And you have to grapple with that shit. I mean, stuff. You can say shit. It's okay. okay, Sweet. (laughs) And like, it's like, guess who never has to jump over these ridiculous hurdles? Atheists. There is no narrative. There is no argument for such a ridiculous thing. And it's like, I I used to think of atheism as a dirty word. And the first time that I encountered an atheist was online on YouTube. And this guy had tears streaming down his face as he was talking about how grateful he is that there is no God. And as an active, total, solid member of the Mormon church, I thought I, I couldn't make sense of it because he's like, you know, if there's someone who needs to be helped in this life, I'm not waiting on some God to, you know, give this person food or, you know, this whole narrative of God's got you in his hand. Well, maybe someone should tell God that if children don't eat for long enough periods of time, they die. Yeah. Because it's like this whole, like, you'll never be pushed past what you're able. And then people die. Yeah. It's it's just like, where's the line? (laughs) What are we talking about here? If you can die, that seems pretty, you know, world ending. That seems pretty definite. Yeah. And to be like, well, just believe harder, I guess, was always the answer. Regardless of how sophisticated we try to make it sound, it was, well, faith harder, dude. Or that God has a purpose. One of the things my husband is always saying is, regardless of what happens, God wins. Because at least in the high demand religions, if he answers your prayer, then God wins. He's the hero. If he doesn't answer your prayer, there's a reason. If you suffer, if you struggle, if you're not eating, if you got sexually abused, if you, that there's some purpose and he's trying to teach you some sort of lesson. Yeah. And I really struggle with that. And I think anyone who is sane would struggle with that because life is hard enough. Life is hard enough just living. Yeah. Learning how to connect with other people, providing for yourself, we really need to add starvation on top of that. We really need to add sexual abuse on top of that or spousal abuse on top of that or, you know, Mm -hmm. any of those other like a Holocaust on top of that. We need to add murder and feeling insecure in your neighborhood or racism or homophobia. We need to add that on top of the trials that people have to face other than just living. Yeah. When you have to defend your abuser more than you do yourself, that's a pretty safe sign that you are in a cult. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk. We've talked on a little bit how God is inconsistent in the Bible. He does abusive Mm -hmm. things. We've talked even about how in today's interpretation of what goes on in the Bible, we see some of that abuse where I think earlier, I think it was when we were talking before we started recording, you talked about how you know, God wasn't there during the Holocaust, but, you know, was helping Joseph Smith sleep with 14 year olds or just in mainstream Christianity where God will show up and help you find your keys, but won't show up for the girl who's being molested by her uncle. It it just doesn't make sense that there would be a, a God like that. 
Yeah. And as you look at the pattern of Christianity as it's grown, it doesn't come to us in the sing-songy, what can we do to make your day better sort of way. Christianity did not become a major religion by its quality of truth, but by its quantity of violence. That's yeah. how it spread. And Christians have no right to deny that that's what happened, just mm -hmm. because it's not that way today. This God is, he says, I love you so much that I'm going to hide my existence to the point that I will be indistinguishable from other gods. And if you follow the wrong God, you're going to suffer for eternity. That's the sales pitch of God. That's the sales pitch of the Bible and any other holy book that you can you can name. Basically, there are a few out there that aren't, aren't terrible, but uh, it's just learning how to bow down before this being who doesn't exist. And how people don't see the extortion that's there. There's one of my favorite memes is it's the picture of Christ knocking on the door and Christ says, let me in. And then from inside the voice says, why? And then Christ says, so I can save you. And then the voice from inside says, well, from what? And he says, well, from what I'm going to do to you, if you don't let me in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like narcissistic, abusive 80s rom-com boyfriend is Jesus. Like in, in, and you can only say, oh, you mistranslated that so many times, but there's so many instances of God being this absolute villain that it's just, you can't do it anymore. The cognitive dissonance builds and then all these things that you've been putting up on that shelf that is just strained to the max, eventually it snaps and, and it's so painful, but it's so beautiful because when that absolute just heartbreak happens, you know, the healing can finally begin. So there's a silver lining for the people who are absolutely crushed by the things that they learn about the church and about how the narrative was so inconsistent and so incomplete and so morally devoid. It's a hard thing to realize that you've been mistaking poison for an antidote your entire life. But once you make that realization, man, there's the healing, the healing begins. And one thing I don't doubt is people's capacity to heal. It can take time. It can take really tough realizations. But I've, I've seen people who were absolutely suicidal, wanting to just end it all because of it, and who have come back and have absolutely wonderful, thriving lives themselves. And not only that, they go and help other people do the same because they were in that state of desperation at one point, and they can help other people, which is why I, I have so much mad respect for people who are vocal about leaving the church, because you have so much to lose. You have friends and family and the way that people think about you. And you know, above anything, we crave love and acceptance. And so if anything gets in the way of that, we don't want to do it. Hence the cognitive dissonance, because on one side, we feel this moral obligation to be honest, you know, to realize that, hey, this is a fraud and all my friends and family are being defrauded by it. And also wanting to stay on the good side and keep that love flowing into your life. And it seems like a very hard thing. And uh, as I... I, I had to really seriously consider that. I mean, I said I left in 2018 and was very aware it was a cult. And it, it took me years to get back to uh, to actually being vocal about it, basically a year ago. And it's it's wild that that was my experience. It took me that long, even after I knew it was true. So I get why people are hesitant. But man, the authenticity and the fact that people who are like me now can see, can find me because I'm not faking Mormon anymore. You know, I don't show up to a party and say, I watch Game of Thrones and then, you know, throw in, but it was the edited version, which is our way of saying, so I'm still worthy. I'm still a good person. Keep loving me. It's just like we beg for this love that is so conditional and calling it love is, is a massive overstatement. It's not love. It's base connection. If, if that, so I am so much happier without there being a God. 
I'm so much happier without having to play that game anymore. I'm out of this rat race and I'm not looking for external validation anymore. That's one thing that you learn real quick when you leave the church is that if you're relying on external validation and you don't look inward and become your own source of flowing, gentle love for yourself and what you've been through, then that's going to be tough. And that's something that we all have to do because you know, one of the one of the most challenging things about love is that it puts us face to face with our deepest fear. You have to actually ask yourself, I think one of the toughest questions, am I worthy of love? And Christianity would have you say, absolutely not, you dirty sinner. Right out of the box, you are a sinner. You are born in sin. You are unfit for heaven. And for someone to look at a baby and to think that we have to save this baby, it's like that that's insane. Or even you know, if you go from the LDS narrative until eight years old. It's like, how about we just stop with the judgment and the doom and gloom and always hustling for our worthiness and that we're, you know, that we're not worthy of hell inherently. It's like, is that so much to ask? There's so much to ask that we look at people and just see something good that's there instead of something that needs to be fixed. Well, and I think that really is the crux of the, I'm sorry, I'm going to cough again. No, you're fine. (laughs) I'm over here dying silently on mute. While he's talking and I'm like taking it in and like agreeing, but coughing my guts out over here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So uh, tis the season winter. It's lovely. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Um, But no, that's the crux of, I think the abuse is this idea that you are fundamentally broken and flawed and therefore are in need of a savior. First of all, Mm -hmm. that's a very narcissistic idea that you're broken and you're lucky that I love you enough to be here with you and to save you and to Mm -hmm. give you the things that I'm giving you, giving you this second chance, give you an ability to live with me. No one else would love you. No, you're not worthy of anything without me um, is such a narcissistic idea. And this idea where you were touching on you know, when we're deconstructing, one of the best things we can do is learn to love ourselves. That's the crux of my work as well. I work on helping people reclaim their identity and learn to love and accept themselves. And the reason that's so important is because we've been taught to be codependent either with our idea of God, that he's this either a narcissistic God that believes we're broken and he deigns to spend time with us. And therefore we need to worship him and love him and praise him and accept him all the days of our life here on earth and forevermore in eternity. That sounds like hell to me to sit there just worshiping and praising someone. It sounded like hell to me when I was in the Mormon faith, not to mention forever having babies like heaven for women sounds awful to Terrible. me. Yep. Yeah. Populating a planet. Good luck. Sharing my husband with other women. No, thank you. Yeah. If that's not what you sign up for, that that's a no, no. Yeah. So there's that, or you've got this idea of a codependent God that your actions can influence his feelings. And so you have to tiptoe around on eggshells because he's so fragile and his ego is so fragile Mm -hmm. That you're constantly, you know, trying to keep him happy and not make him angry and not make him sad. And I mean, that is a codependent relationship as well with or without the narcissism. That alone is an unhealthy relationship where you have one person that's so fragile that his human children who 
aren't supposed to have anywhere near the capability or cognizance or power that he has have to tiptoe around on eggshells in order to keep him happy and keep him from losing his crap and flooding the whole earth again and killing everyone or sending down a lightning bolt or, you know, burning the whole earth, which is what we are taught will happen the next time. We're tasked with the impossible feat of making someone else happy when we can't even control our own thoughts and emotions. And they say, go, go make this person happy. You can't do it. And even if you could, you're robbing that person of developing the skill set that allows them to keep their own mental well-being in a good place. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's like we're running in the wrong direction thinking that it's, it's the right one. Yeah. And even if you run it, you're never going to get to where you think you're going. So it's flawed on every possible level. It won't give you what you want. And even if you do everything perfectly, which you're incapable of doing, you will still fail. That is Christianity in a Coke can. Yeah. And we're taught constantly, like you said, to look for that outside validation that we're good enough, constantly trying to like do enough. And like you said, be perfect enough. So that we get that well done, thou good and faithful servant, that validation from God that we're worthy enough, that we're good enough to live with him and and to enjoy heaven and to have that mansion, like you said, that sick mansion. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that we're taught to be codependent in Christianity and in Mormonism. And as a Jehovah's Witness, we're taught not to trust ourselves. We're taught to look outside of ourselves, to get that validation that what we're doing is right and that we're good enough. And it sets up the stage for all kinds of abuse, not just from God, but from church leaders, from parents, from other people in our congregations, from future spouses or people that we date for abusive relationships with our own kids. Yeah, it's bad. You know, as I as I look back, one of the things that I, I think I, I've grieved slash am grieving the hardest is the loss of my identity. And I think it's interesting because my my background is in personality psychology and kind of the science of what makes people be the way that they are. Because that's something that is infinitely fascinating to me. What makes people tick? What makes them do the things that they do? And so one of the things that I do with my clients is I I have them take a personality test, not because they are accurate, you know, uh, that's something that everyone should know. A personality test is rarely accurate. And there are so many problems with them in the way that how it's worded that you can't, you know, even if you controlled it perfectly, people are going to misinterpret. Or I guess uh, they have, they, people define each word differently. And there's a vast amount of nuance between how a person defines a certain words or what kind of feelings and emotions and memories that they associate with a certain word, which would obviously make their results skew more toward what they think. So the way that I've, I say it is personality tests, they tell you what, who you think you are, not necessarily who you are. If you want to know who you are, um, ask your mom or <laughs> ask your boss. They've actually done a lot of studies on that, and it's way more accurate. Not to say that your mom knows you, especially if she's in a cult. But anyway, so as I have people take these tests, we kind of go through the big five of personality. And Are you familiar with the big five of personality? I'm not familiar with the big five of personality. And inject really quick. So especially those of us coming from cults, ask your best friend who you are, because your best Love friend, it. I think is going to have a better idea of who you are. And a, I think a lot of us have mother wounds. A lot of us have father wounds. A lot of us have boss wounds. So I'm like, maybe don't ask them. Ask your best friend, yeah. ask somebody who has a good picture of both your strengths and your weaknesses. So yeah. 
So the big five of personality is what the personality tests are trying to figure out. So it's kind of like you have these five coins and on each side, you have two opposing energies. So for example, one of the coins is introversion and extroversion, right? And so Mm -hmm. it wants to kind of figure out or on this continuum where introversion kind of blends into extroversion um, and it becomes more and more extreme, obviously more polarized, the further you go on that continuum, it wants to figure out where are you now uh, the big five. So there's openness, there's conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So those are the empirically, like there's, these are proven to be energies. If you're more so one, then you're going to have a harder time being another. What I do with clients is I help them to kind of see how they see themselves. For each of these five coins, one side of each of the coins is going to come more naturally to you. You're going to like it a little bit better because for some reason, your brain just feels more happy there. So it's kind of like on one side of the coin, you're swimming downstream, you're swimming with the current and one, you're swimming upstream. And being able to identify which traits you're friends with and which ones you're kind of uh, at odds with is very important if you're going to heal and reclaim that identity. Because a lot of the time, what we realize, so for example, if there's a child who is very introverted, born into a family full of extroverts, that child will try to always be extroverted, which means during his life, he's going to spend a lot of time swimming upstream. He's exhausted. His brain is not happy there, even if he can get really good at it. Uh, one, One of the quotes I really like is that success without fulfillment is massive failure because all it means is that you got so good at something you don't like something that doesn't bring you joy and if you can get good at something that does bring you joy why would you even consider the alternative now that being said we have to be versatile we have to be able to have the skill set to be situationally appropriate but that doesn't mean that we throw ourselves under the bus and lose our hold on who we are and like where our brain is actually happy in order to gain that praise and approval because when we do that we engage in self-deception and we basically are we kind of tell ourselves that you're not good enough as you are you have to be this other person and that's problematic because there's nothing wrong with being an introvert it's not a moral issue it is not about like extroversion is good and introversion is bad or creative people are this and pragmatic people are that way. But as people grow up, they don't know who they are because so much of their time since before they even had a self image, like we've learned that even babies will change their behavior in order to get praise and approval and love. And so that totally reopens the question of, man, this person that I've been all along, it was probably just who I had to be in order to get that love. And that is completely determined on what kind of a family you were born into. What kind of issues did your parents have? What kind of inadequacies did they project onto you that you needed to you know, not do the same so that they could feel that they're a good parent? And so from the beginning, just because of the difference of personality and temperament, the way that people are just kind of hardwired out of the box, we try to become like them because we gain love and connection with people who are like us. And if you're not like them, then you can be looked at as something that is a problem to be solved because the family culture is maybe extroverted and you're an introvert. It's like, hmm, so-and-so is so weird because he just doesn't say anything and he's quiet a lot and he's very introspective and it's just kind of like, dude, quit being weird. And so this kid growing up, he starts to think that his introversion equals weird. His brain kind of ties those two concepts together. And this, mind you, is without any religious indoctrination. Now, just imagine what happens you know, with, with the way that you view sexuality when you're when you're raised in an environment that puts you at odds with something that is so beautiful and natural and something that you can derive so much joy from. It's like it, it, it doesn't make sense. And so 
I try to help people to identify on these five coins. I help them to find which traits they're at odds with. Because often they find the trait that they're at odds with is actually the one they are most genuinely. But because let's say, for example, if someone, let's take the trait of being assertive, for example. Now, let's say that a kid's father was overly assertive and he was kind of an asshole and he was really, you know, just domineering and controlling. That person can say, oh, to be assertive equals domineering and controlling. Well, I don't want to be that. So I shouldn't be assertive. And so they become ultra pleaser and they never take They never get their own needs met, and they just become this perpetually burned out human being who is slaving away as hard as they can to to, to make other people happy. They're trying to pour from an empty cup, which eventually that catches up to you. You're trying so hard, but you're not even meeting the needs of other people because you have nothing left to give. And it's such a tragic and cruel way for someone to be taught to live, and it shouldn't be that way. And so as you help people to kind of to, to look at why their relationship with certain traits is bad. Like the creative kid born into a very pragmatic family, you know, his love of art and things are going to be seen as get your head out of the clouds. That's not going to make you money. It's not practical. And so they view that creative child as though his identity is a passing phase that he's just going through. And then the kid finally reaches 30 and they're like, damn, this is permanent. Maybe that's actually who he is. Yeah. And and that that midlife crisis, it, it's crazy how that's usually when it happens between 30 and 50, where people are finally like, oh, no, this is just me. It's not changing. And I can't deny it anymore. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you and I both do this professionally, helping people to reclaim their identity, because that's that's the scariest thing, because you can only read you know crazy quotes about Mormon leadership for so long before it's not helping you heal anymore. No, I think it's really helpful at the beginning to have, you know, all of that deconstruction, because it's almost like you need all of that to help you be okay with the doubt, be okay with the dissonance, be okay with trying something new. It's, it's like, you need the abuse pointed out first. Like this is not okay. This is a lie. And you have to wrap your head around that before you're able to be like, okay, so I can release that. Now, now what do I want instead? What yeah. feels like you said, what feels like I'm swimming with the flow of the stream? What feels more natural for me? You know, the the book that helped me do that was Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. Have you read yes. that one? Yes. Yes. Oh I love gosh. that one. I also it's... read The Cult of Trump and that gave me even more insight. Oh yeah. I haven't read yeah. that one yet, but that one's on the list. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that. My husband bought it for me for my birthday last year. Was it last year or was it two years ago? I, I swear the last two years are a total vortex, but it was either last <laughs> year or two years ago. He brought it home and he was like, this is for you. And I was like, thanks. And he was like, I think you'll love it. He was like, I can't quit reading it. So yeah, it, it took that whole idea of cults and it brought it down and it made it where you could apply it to just two people or you could ap- apply it to a group of millions. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's easy to like when he's talking about his experience with the Mooney cult or with with the cults that he talks about. It's your brain because it doesn't trigger your brain's defenses because it's not critiquing your belief system. It's easy to see it out there, and it, like your brain will just it won't throw it won't trip the wire where your brain goes okay defense mode hold on like I need to fight this I need to defend you know my belief system. It made me be able to see it in other people, and slowly I started looking at my own faith, and I was like, whoa. Like all this stuff that is over here, the bite model, the control over, over all these different aspects of your life, 
I was like, man, like I, I can come up with quotes for every single one of those that I've already collected and compiled in my little one note as I was deconstructing. Mm-hmm. And now I finally, you know, saw like, wow, you know, I was on a TikTok hot live yesterday and a question was asked, um, how do you, how do you get rid of the Mormon voice that is always in your head telling you you're wrong and you are going to go to hell? Because I know atheists, like atheists who don't believe in God, who are deathly afraid of burning in hell for forever. And it's so interesting because what you think you believe consciously, you can say, I don't believe in a God and your subconscious, what it has been soaking in those toxic messages your whole life will say, oh, yes, you do. And so until, as Carl Jung says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate, which yep. is one of the most profound ideas that, that uh, you think that you're in control. You think because you consciously believe something, that's what you actually believe. And so as I've coached people, I, for example, um, this person, before I was doing kind of the religious coaching, this woman came to me and she was really hung up about her relationships never panning out. And so I said, okay, well, let's figure out what this person believes about love. Just generally. I said, what do you think about love? And she said, well, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. It love is oxygen. It is the reason why we're here. It makes life you know, bearable. I said, okay, that's very cool. So when's the last time that you went on a date or opened yourself up to love? And she says, oh, hell no, I would never do that. That's insane. Like that's, there's so much pain. And so it's interesting how we don't even realize what we actually believe. So if you want to know what you actually believe, don't listen to anything that comes out of your mouth. Look at what you do. Watch your behavior without judging it. You are the conscious awareness that's just sitting behind, watching neutrally what you do, and you'll find out what you actually believe. Because if you can't start with an honest appraisal of who you are, what you actually believe, as opposed to what you think you believe, because you know you should believe these things, your healing is going to be misguided and go off in a direction where there's actually not healing to be found. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's so interesting because I think that really describes that whole dichotomy of God is love, which I hear a lot from, you know, my friends who are still religious. No, God is love. He loves you and he wants you to be happy and just all of those things. I feel like that's what comes out of the mouth, but the actions are different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing to ask a person to be brutally honest because our ego is so powerful in wanting to keep us from seeing what's actually true. And as somebody who's familiar with shadow work like you, uh, have you, have you ever analyzed uh, Frollo, the villain in Hunchback of Notre Dame? No, I haven't. He is the classic example of someone who needs to do shadow work. And he's, he's somebody that uh, I go into quite deeply because you know, that song hellfire yes. where he's singing by himself at the fireplace. And he's talking about how like, so, so Frodo is such an interesting character because he identifies consciously as someone who is pious, someone who is holy, someone who is, who is uh, better than other people. And he, it, I, I want to pull up the lyrics to the song. Because it is so fascinating when you when you look at what it what it is. Okay, so Beata Maria, which is uh, Latin for uh, the Virgin Mary. You know I'm a righteous man. Of my virtue I am justly proud. You know I'm so much purer than the common, vulgar, weak, licentious crowd. Tell me, then tell me, Maria, why I see her dancing there, why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul. I feel her, I see her, the sun caught in her raven hair is blazing in me out of all control, like fire, hellfire, the fire in my, this fire in my skin, this burning desire is turning me to sin. It's not my fault, I'm not to blame. It is the gypsy girl, the witch who sent this flame. It's not my fault if in God's plan, he made the devil so much stronger than the man. Protect me, Maria, don't let the siren cast her 
her spell. Don't let her fire sear my flesh and bone. Destroy Esmeralda and let her taste the fires of hell, or else let her be mine and mine alone. Hellfire, dark fire. Now, Gypsy, it's your turn. Choose me or your pyre. Be mine or you will burn. God have mercy on her. God have mercy on me. But she will be mine or she will burn. It's like the darkest wow. Disney moment ever. I remember and being it's, it's scared right and I never watched <laughs> that movie again. That song, I was like, that man is evil. And I never watched The Hunchback ever again since being a child. Yeah. So he is, he is such an interesting example of, um, of somebody who can't see through their own narrative. And it's so, it's interesting, right? Because everyone who's watching this film, even children can pick up on this guy is messed up, but why can't he see it? And the answer is that he can't see it. So then the question is, why can't he see it? So because Frollo's consciousness identifies with being chaste, benevolent, and holy, like we talked about before, uh, when thoughts and feelings surface that contradict his self-concept, his ego directs his attention outward, thus sparing him the inconvenience of having to examine if he himself is the problem, if he's contributing to his own demise. So instead of seeing that his lust for Esmeralda is coming from within, like in the lyrics, um, he assumes Esmeralda is evil and has somehow bewitched him. His agency has been revoked because she is a witch and she's cast her spell. He And he also finds himself helplessly attracted to that person that a self-proclaimed holy man shouldn't be attracted to. But yet that energy is also counterbalanced by his attraction to her. So he's, again, it's the internal civil war that's there. And so that's kind of what having a shadow means. It means that you're at war with yourself and you don't even realize it because what you believe consciously doesn't match up with your unconsciousness and the very skill set that would allow Frollo to see clearly and be able to fix his problem are the exact traits that he has repressed into the shadow because it doesn't align with how he thinks he is. And it's just like, boom, yeah. It becomes so clear. And then, so as, as people say that, and, or as people listen to me talk about Frollo, because he's in my presentations that I share with clients about shadow work, it's like, oh yeah, man, Frollo's an idiot. And then I turn the conversation to, so how are you like him? And they don't like that question. Nope. Nope. Because every one of us has to look at how we're like Frollo, because if you don't think that you're like Frollo, you're just representing how thick and dense the shadow that you have accumulated is and how radical honesty is you know the thing you're not willing to give up you're not you're not willing to embrace it you're not willing to actually look at yourself and be like man the things i say and the things i do don't exactly line up and so it's like you know for for an atheist who still is afraid that god's going to burn them in hell for forever it's like there's some deconstruction that needs to go on there and there's two ways that we need to deconstruct and one of them depending on what your experience is some people leave because of heart reasons and some people leave because of head reasons but if you only deconstruct from one side you leave a lot of healing there on the table so for the atheist who still believes that they're going to go to hell what that means is that on on a subconscious level even though consciously you've you you feel it's been eradicated you don't believe it anymore you don't claim that anymore it's still running your life and you still have this fear which means that on some level you still believe it And so you have to go into that subconscious and retrain it And the way that you do that. Like you understand is through a process called shadow work, which opening that can, we don't have enough time to, to to get into what that can be. Yeah. But the way that it was explained to me was it's like, you know, in, in the nineties, how everything was corded, everything had a cord and, you know, everything became wireless in every house. There was like a basket full of cords and they would be all tangled in and out of each other. And so what shadow work is, is when you kind of, you, you 
put your hand down in there into the dark and you grab one of those tangled wires and you have to pull them out one by one and you discover what do I actually believe. And once you've been brave enough to admit that maybe you don't believe what you think you believe because your behavior doesn't align with it and there's you know cognitive dissonance there. And just like when we were in the Mormon church, cognitive dissonance, oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. That's inconvenient. That could lead to you know me having to change, me mm-hmm. having to grow. And grow isn't that much fun because it's painful and I have to relinquish who I was and I have to be like the phoenix and burn in order to become new. And, and people might not like me if I do that. Exactly. Then I don't get the love. And we're so wired for love and connection that if we don't get it, we'll do basically anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the the horrible things that have happened in this world because people wanted love, the the way they would throw themselves under the bus or throw other people under the bus or get on a bus and blow it up for the love of, you know, because this is what my family expects of me. It it is so insane. So insane. So shadow work is, is one of the most helpful tools that I've used personally for myself to, to, to make myself be more honest and to actually like, like shadow work is not like mindfulness meditation where it's like, you're supposed to feel good, especially challenging because it's going right to the heart of everything that you fear, the things that you are so emotionally triggered by. It doesn't make sense to your ego to want to draw near to those things. They want to stay away from them. Yeah. Our, our yeah. brain, yeah, it, it's not wired. It's wired for, for pleasure, not for pain. And pain equals damage to the brain. And if enough damage occurs, you die. So in a way, pain equals death to your brain, which is why like one unit of pain to your brain is not equal to one unit of pleasure. And so the way that manifests in life is that we are willing to give up many pleasures to avoid one pain. And that's why we don't live. Oh, that's deep. Something to chew on, huh? Yeah, that's deep. <laughs> Oh, we were actually just talking about, cause I have an app and on the app, we do a call and there's a lot of people, you know, that get on the call. One of the bigger things that they talk about is the fear of hell and how cognitively yeah. they've come to terms with that. And so do you mind talking about that for just a little bit longer? I know that there are people listening that would love to hear your take on if you do have that unconscious belief that they're is a God and you're going to burn, even if consciously you've come to terms with maybe there is no God or the God that you believe in is a compassionate, kind being, how do you deal with the fear of hell and making mistakes and trying things on as you're rediscovering your identity? Good question. So if somebody is still having that, that, you know, that threatening God voice, um, Like I said before, it means you still believe it. It means there's further deconstruction from kind of the research point of view. And a lot of people, because they're so hurt, like the heart is so hurt, that drawing near and getting into the arguments and learning and going through all the quotes that might rip you up a little bit more in your heart, it's something that I think we should still move toward, even though it's going to be painful, because if we don't, that can that voice will still linger and it's not the same for everybody and everybody needs to be very attuned to what's actually going on in, them, in themselves because what we don't want to do is just cause ourselves unneeded pain right i think that's a good goal in life to not cause yourself unnecessary pain and so you have to be you have to listen to yourself and understand what's happening but also acknowledge that our egos are not wired to want to deconstruct from the brain because it's like doing homework but people, it's so I think it's actually kind of one of the more underrated ways that we heal that a lot of people don't do. And they put feelings above truth. 
And so it's like, well, I, I feel that this is going to hurt me, so I shouldn't go toward it. Well, it's like, I feel that eating McDonald's every day is going to be awesome because it's delicious and cheap and quick. But then there's, un, you know, there's the unintended consequences of that or always, you know, of not doing shadow work. It's like, yeah, you totally get to avoid the pain of, you know, that just crucifyingly painful radical honesty that you develop with yourself when you say, you know what? I don't care what it means. I want what is true. When somebody comes to that realization and commits to that kind of a lifestyle, where if someone calls me out, I don't immediately say, nope, you're wrong. You know, my ego just takes the wheel and controls and says, nope, not happening, because that's what Frollo does. And we can all see how bad that is for him. But when it happens within us, it's like, well, I mean, I'm a nice guy. You know, it's like, yeah. we're not being honest with ourselves. So one of the toughest questions that every individual will have to answer in life, and it doesn't matter what they say, matters what they do, is how much truth am I willing to handle? The truth can burn you. It's hard to come to the realization that like the vast, like what if 90% of you was dead wood and it just needs to be burned? Like in, in a lot of ways, we're like the phoenix. Like we've been around for a long time. We've been through a lot of things. The beak is crooked. The talons are dull. We're missing feathers. But even in that state, are you willing to let yourself burn? in order to become new, in order to become a more honest version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't mean this in any sort of supernatural sense, because a lot, of, a lot of churches will talk about the Phoenix and they'll say, come to Christ. And he will, you know, the, 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 the baptism of the fire. So I see how people have taken this concept and used it to fuel their own ridiculous religious narrative that hurts people. Burn out the dross. Isn't that exactly. what it was like? Yeah. Yep. yep. And so it's like, you do have to look at yourself and you have to ask yourself, am I really willing to be honest? If I'm doing stupid things in my life, am I willing to own that? If someone criticizes me, instead of just the knee-jerk reaction of, no, you're dumb, you don't know what you're talking about, you ask yourself, maybe I am wrong. Maybe there's some exploration. Even if, even if I, I, you know, I am wrong, that's okay, because the first step of becoming right is realizing where you're wrong. But our ego doesn't want to go through that because it's painful. And so we have to continually ask ourselves that question frequently whenever, whenever we're triggered. Take that moment, breathe, and think, would there be something possibly to gain here by exploring? If nothing else, just to make sure that maybe there's something that I'm doing, like Frodo, that is contributing to my own demise that I don't see there. Because I think we can all agree that if there is, wouldn't we want to know about it? If we have been ingesting something that is carcinogenic, would we want to know? If you do have cancer, do you want your doctor to tell you or just lie to you and say, no, you're good. You're healthy as a horse, man. Go for it. Because if he tells you that you have cancer, now you got to do stuff. Now you got to, you got to take action. And the ego's like, oh, take an action. Like what? I've been fine this whole time. I don't feel like I have cancer. Feelings are not an adequate way to determine truth. I feel like your feelings can help point you in the direction of where there's places to explore more. Your feelings are like alarm bells, if that makes sense. So good point. Yeah. Feelings are not the enemy. I'm not trying to denigrate people's (laughs) feelings. I'm glad you pointed that out because that could have been something that someone walked away with and that would have been unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. It's um, it's, I love because you talk a lot about the head and I do talk a lot about feelings and I start with feelings to go up to thoughts and it sounds like, you kind of incorporate them maybe in a little bit of a different way, but I love that because there are people listening that my method might not speak to them the most. Yeah. 
And so, I don't think that like, if that was the case, I wouldn't say that your methodology is wrong by any means, because it's not that there's something flawed in it. It's just some people need to start from the other direction yep. and go down. Yep. And so really, it's just finding out what works with the person. Yep. And I mean, healing and deconstruction is messy. And it's not like you're just going to check off the box. Okay, I'll heal from my heart for this year. And then I'll heal from the head next year. It's like, yep. you can do them simultaneously. It, it's, yeah. it's messy. Healing is not a linear process. It's not just, you know, you just like a graph. No, I up. loved your idea of reaching down into that dark drawer or that dark basket of cords and pulling it out because it yeah. is a lot like that. It's tangled and it, you might, you might untangle part of a cord, but then need to untangle part of another cord before you can keep working on this one. Like it's all, it can all be kind of mixed up together. And so, yeah. So I started with CBT whenever I was healing with that top-up approach, starting with my thoughts and then moving into my feelings, I found that it worked better for me to start with my feelings and let them be alarm bells that taught me that there was some sort of subconscious thought going on. Both work. Yeah. The main thing is just being willing to be honest with yourself. First, be curious and non-judgmental, and then be honest with yourself about what you observe. So. Yeah. You want to go down a, a rabbit hole real quick? About Let's tools do it. That help. Yes, this is going to be a little controversial for some people. Psychedelics. Let's talk about it. Okay. So first of all, we have to make the disclaimer that we're not telling people to go do psychedelics, um, do them legally. Anyway, um, with psychedelics. So for example, there was one afternoon I took psilocybin, which is the psychoactive component of magic mushrooms. And the... I have a hard time even putting into words what it's like religion asks the questions and psychedelics gives you the answer. And uh, while I do not believe in the supernatural at all, psychedelics can be such an absolutely profound tool for healing. So one of the biggest, most painful things about me leaving the church was my relationship with, with my baby sister. I love her so much. And when, ooh, gotta be careful not to get emotional when I talk about my sister. Emotions allowed. <laughs> yeah, when I get emotional, I can't talk anymore. So that's the problem. <laughs> so um, when when I left, it was there was this rift between us because I had always kind of been her person that she talked to to keep her in the church. And now all of a sudden, I was I was fighting for the other team. And that relationship, I had to realize that as I left, I had to, I had. I had to choose between having relationships stay nice and the same the way that I was used to, or me embracing the truth and then living in, in accordance with what I now know is true. And it was so painful because our relationship will never be the same. And it's like, I, I have grown up alongside this person who I love and things have been a certain way. And when I left, things were going to be different for forever. I took a psychedelic having no idea what I was in for, I had no idea. In an afternoon, I completely grieved that relationship. And I embraced that it would never be the same. And it's okay. Because she's her own person. And I'm my own person. And it's so easy to become enmeshed in another person and to not to deny yourself your own identity because you love someone so much. That's hard. So with there, there are certain realizations that I've come to and things that I have grieved that I had no idea I had to grieve. And psychedelics were the thing that opened that door. So when people say, oh, it's a drug, 
I'm like, oh man, if you think that weed or psilocybin or some of these other psychedelics are like meth, heroin, or cocaine, I hate that people use word and I use the word of drug to describe something that is such an, a powerful tool to help people. And it's not for everybody. There's some people whose emotional states cannot handle even the slightest tug on what is real. And so you have to be very well-researched and understand what you're doing. But as far as um, people who are maybe open to exploring that, I would say get well-researched. And I'm somebody who has had a bad trip, which is the worst case scenario of what happens with a psychedelic. And I, I wonder if there even is such a thing as a bad trip. It certainly felt like one, but the amount of things that I learned because there were certain levels of radical honesty that I was never willing to go to. And psychedelics ripped that barrier down and said, look at you, look at yourself and be honest. And I was like, wow, I don't like it. <laughs> mm. And there was so much growth that came just because I put this thing in my mouth and I swallowed crazy, so crazy. Anyway, psychedelics. Psychedelics is the reason why I can still use the word sacred. Really? Mm -hmm. In what way? Anti-theist. Uh, anti as a complete diehard atheist. The things that I experience, the states of mind that I have gone to, it's like in, in a trip, you can live and die a thousand lifetimes. It's, uh, I, I don't even know how, it's such... It's such a personal experience and not, not in the sense of I can't talk about it because I will talk my ear off about, you know, psychedelics and how, um, how useful they can be, but they, uh, something for people at the very least to research. And I love that psilocybin is becoming de decriminalized, um, in certain States and that it, there's so much research going into it as a therapeutic tool now so that people aren't calling it, oh, that's a drug. Yeah. And that is one of the most profound healing tools that is available to us. And it absolutely, like this is the, one of the rare situations in which I will use the word miraculous because miraculous is a very hijacked term. You know, you prayed for rain and it rained that day. It's a miracle. It cheapens the word. And the, the fact that there is such a compound where the molecules are just so that they can create so much healing and it comes out of the dirt. I mean, let, let's say you believe in God. Why would God give us such a wonderful tool and then have us not use it? And if you look at it from the atheist side, it's like, well, why the hell not? It's like, it's not, a, it's, it's not immoral. Well, and even from the therapist side, I mean, with my husband being in therapy and us kind of running in therapy circles, psilocybin has actually come up a lot talking about trauma because it brings down walls and allows you, you know, those things that we shove into the dark corners of our bodies, the things that we seal off and put steel doors around and the things that we don't want to confront, um, psilocybin kind of, it, it allows us to relax into a state where we feel comfortable or at least able to open up those boxes or to drag them out of the shadows or to unlock the safe and confront those. And there's actually places here in Colorado. I don't, I don't know where you live, but there's places. Okay. There's places here in Colorado, just next door, where um there are actually therapists that do oh. use psilocybin and they sit there with you and help guide you through yeah. your trip and ask you questions. They hold you while you cry. They, you know, help guide that grieving process because, like yeah. you said, a lot of it is grief, a lot of it is loss, a lot of it is trauma. 
that we haven't felt comfortable confronting with our conscious brain. And that allows us to slip into that subconscious state where we are able to kind of work with some of that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Man, there's what, what a great combination to have a qualified mental health person with psychedelics there. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. You can tell just looking at your face, like that's exciting to you. Yeah. It's, it's such a beautiful thing because I, I really wonder if there were certain things that I never would have grieved. I mean, I don't think I would have, cause I didn't, wasn't even aware that I had to grieve them. I thought me my relationship with my sister was good and that we had overcome it, that we had, I had processed my grief in regards to the changing relationship with my sister. And I, yeah, I took psilocybin and it was like, just tears flowed like they have never flowed so wild. But yeah, and there you're are, right. We have to feel it. Like we're healed of suffering only by experiencing it to the full. That's a, a quote by Marcel Proust that I love. We're healed I love that. of the suffering only by experiencing it to the full. But we don't want to feel it. And so we don't heal from it. And so it continues to manifest itself in problematic ways in our lives. No, it's like you said, the brain tries to protect us from pain because pain equals death for the brain. And it tries mm-hmm. to help us experience the least amount of pain possible and grief feels like pain. Trauma feels like pain. Loss feels like pain. Just change feels like pain. And so there's a lot of these things that we just, we thought stop, we emotion stop, we bury them and we go to a toxically positive place or we numb so that we don't have to feel those things. We numb with work. We numb with sex. We numb with, you know, too much sugar. We numb with sleep. We numb with all kinds of things. Endless Mm -hmm. scrolling on TikTok. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've been guilty of that during the, during the pandemic, there've definitely been some numbing behaviors. So I'm like, Oh, well, hello. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes a little, yeah. It's like a little distraction can be good, but when it's just perpetual numbing, it's like, yeah, like sometimes you need a break. Sometimes, you know, yeah, you pop an edible and you just let yourself feel some joy for a minute. And then it just gives you what you need to, to face the challenges again. So I, yeah, I, I don't things that I once labeled as, you know, sinful, like, you know, the use of marijuana or psilocybin or other psychedelics. I thought those were evil. And now I look at them and I'm like, man, has my opinion changed? I've I've changed yeah. the way that I believe about so many things in my life after deconstructing. So I didn't realize that my faith was my entire identity. The church wasn't something that I did or a place that I went to. It was the person that I was. Yeah. And so when you realize that it's not true, man, is there a lot to deconstruct and it's easier just to, I mean, it, it's such a, an insurmountable challenge. It's like, cause when you look at Kay, well, I was the guy who was in a cult. I always thought that was someone else. Someone I see on a Netflix documentary when yeah. I watch wild, wild country, that's someone else. Being in a cult is always something that someone else does, not me. Yeah. And so when you realize that you, you know, you, you lacked the ability to, to see, you know, to, to see clearly, not that that's something that someone should be blamed for because most of us were children. My, my dad could have told me that the garage door opens because the garden gnomes see us coming home and they, you know, wizard beam to the garage and that's what makes it up. I would have believed that yeah. everyone would at, at that, at that age, are you kidding me? And so most of us believed in Santa Claus. Most of us believed in a fat guy that came down our chimney, even if we yep. didn't have a chimney. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so when people feel embarrassed or silly for believing in what they do, I'm very I understand what that feels like, but also encourage them to realize that, you know, when you graduated from college, you know, was that moment tainted by the fact that you knew so little in middle school? It's like, no, you don't even think about that. It's like, it's yeah. okay. You're a human being, you're growing. And, you know, it's like, I, 
I look kind of at my, my mission is the gate is like, okay, I, I baptized like 30, 32 people. Cause I was so spiritual, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I look at the people I've got out and I'm like, I have well surpassed that number. And so it's like, it's not a bad, bad goal to, to try to, you know, counterbalance the things that you did. Granted. I mean, how many of my converts are active Two maybe fills me with, with joy that people weren't as indoctrinated as I was and, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, good times, healing, joy, psychedelics. That's it's a right. Good life. <laughs> it's a good life. It's a good life. Oh, you covered so many great things today. I mean, I think we really did touch on a lot of the abuse that we experienced. I feel like we touched on how it affects our self-worth and how we view other people, how we judge other people, how it separates us from other people. We can't be vulnerable with others in that state. And then we talked about, you know, some ideas for healing and doing the shadow work. And if we need help using, using mushrooms or weed or some of those things to maybe help us get out of our own way in order to explore those things. And I actually really appreciate you bringing some of that up because it can be a taboo topic because I think a lot of us still have some of those subconscious beliefs about, about drugs, as you said. So, yeah. Yeah. The Reagan administration, the ads they put out for people who did weed were so ridiculously embellished and like people were jumping off of buildings and people like were just these terrible things that it's like, no, no, that that's not what weed does. But they were just so against it that they took every possible liberty to make it look like it was this terrible thing when the, I mean, people can have bad experiences for sure, but like man, the amount, I mean, we're having bad experiences just by being alive. It's like, yeah, we're going to quit that too. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's a good tool. Like it can be so useful for people provided that it doesn't become your identity or your soul coping mechanism. It's dessert. You have it from time to time, but if like you're getting baked every single day, every moment of the day, that's when you're running and you need to move toward the pain that you're not allowing yourself to feel through marijuana or whatever drug, you know, and of course drugs don't have to be, you know, compounds. They can be habits. Yeah. Exercise can be a toxic thing for someone who's bulimic and people don't really think of exercise as a negative way because it's always the thing that I should be doing, but I never do, but they don't ever look at the shadow side of it and see how that could actually be weaponized against somebody. Well, yeah. My coping mechanism of choice is working and researching, which Mm -hmm. is typically praised in our society. If you're a hard worker, you're constantly productive, you're researching, you're learning things, Um, reading. These are my coping mechanisms, like my primary coping mechanisms and chocolate milk, my my whole listener base. Now we're talking. There is this kind of chocolate milk that tastes like melted chocolate ice cream. And it has not been available for like four months because of the supply chain issues. But yeah, I I've had to, I've had to like confront that coping mechanism and that, that numbing device in my life, but you're right. Anything can be used as a numbing device. And some of them are praised in our society, like exercising, working out, being productive. And others of them are demonized, like using drugs or alcohol or sex or sleep as a way to cope. So. Yeah, absolutely. If healing is quite counterintuitive because the thing that your brain least wants to do is to move toward the thing that caused you pain, but that's precisely the way to go. It's, it's, uh, there's this quote, uh, it's like the thing you most need to find will be found where you least want to look. Mm. That's where your growth is. 
that's uh, you really want healing, you really want to feel better. Are you willing to put yourself to the grindstone? Are you willing yeah. to be the phoenix? It's like, okay, I have to let myself burn. Hard question. That's such a hard thing to ask of somebody. Will you let yourself burn? Will you let the illusions of who you are, even if dropping those makes you realize that you're not the white knight you think you are? Do you want to go through that just because it will open the door to the possibility that you can now finally start improving? I've come to realize that for every growth in our life, there is also a death. Every change for the better comes with a death of the old. It's a constant cycle of death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. And that gets to be okay. That's, that's not a bad thing. That is, especially for those of us who were taught that we're supposed to be rooted in something and be steadfast, immovable, unchangeable, that we're supposed to decide when we're children, who we're going to be, and then be that person for the rest of our life. The idea that we constantly evolve. I think Jane Fonda, I was just watching a, a Jane Fonda documentary And she said, we should constantly be in revolution. We should constantly be evolving as a nation and as an individual that we should always be in revolution because we're always learning and always burning off the things that don't serve us anymore. And don't, yeah. So I really loved that. Love it. We've had a good conversation today. We've covered a lot of things that I I hope people will find useful or at least kind of get the wheels turning or um, inspire some research. Yeah. I hope people come away with this with some insights, some questions, but before we, before we end today, tell them where they can find you, tell them where they can have conversations with you. Where can they find more of your great sense of humor, your no nonsense approach to (laughs) healing and deconstructing? Where can they find more of that? Let's see. Well, first of all, I'm 90% nonsense. That that's my personality. It doesn't come out so much when, when we talk about this kind of stuff, because it deserves a little bit more, uh, Anyway, just um, website, beyondgonreligion.com. If anybody wants to have a a free session, I do free 30-minute sessions for first-time people because it can be weird for someone's first time getting into coaching. And often you don't know me, I don't know you. And, you know, coaching is kind of like dating. Yeah, There does have to be some sort of a match. And so there is some um, kind of getting to know each other before you commit to something. And so that's why I give people free sessions. So it's just scroll to the bottom of the website and there's a place you can, uh, you can sign up for a free session. TikTok is where I'm most active, uh, beyond God and religion. Every, everything is just beyond God and religion, either my website or TikTok, um, Facebook, it's Kyle Glenn Bishop. I post a lot of, uh, memes and stuff that if the people have found helpful. So anyway, I'm around. So that's where you find me. I love it please go follow his TikTok. He does incredible TikToks. And you're right. You are a complex being that is no (laughs) nonsense about deconstruction, but I love the humor and the sarcasm and the, just the, I don't know, you just are very, very approachable on your platforms. And I have gained a lot of wisdom and insight from your research and from the ways that you have just answered people's questions and, and been there for your audience. And I've appreciated that about you. And I appreciate you you coming here today and sharing your wisdom and your understanding and knowledge and life experience with my audience as well. So you guys go follow him, go interact with him and um, feel free to ask questions and, and comment and do all the things you usually do in the Facebook group or on my Instagram as well. And uh, we will talk to you next Sunday.